On the evening of April 3rd, 1968, the day before a civil rights march in Memphis, Tennessee, Martin Luther King Jr. stood before a crowd at the Mason Temple in Memphis and delivered a speech called, I've Been to the Mountaintop. The final paragraph of that speech goes like this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It would turn out to be his final speech. The next day, April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was assassinated outside his Memphis hotel. And those were his final public words. Now I wonder if it had been known that this would be Dr. King's last speech, if more people would have come to it, or more attention would have been paid to it. There's, there's something kind of fascinating about the final message, the final words, if you will, of, of a public figure. Knowing that we won't hear from them again maybe makes us lean in a little closer or listen a little more carefully. Sometimes we only have that awareness in retrospect, and it's too late. In our text today in John's Gospel, in the 12th chapter, we come to what essentially is Jesus' final sermon. It's His final public message, and just in the next few days after this message, he will spend uh, time with his closest followers in a room alone, and then he will be dragged outside of the city and nailed to a cross to die. And so we see the final public testimony of Jesus before his crucifixion. But along with this final sermon, we also get some summarizing commentary from John. So, and this unit of thought, kind of including John's comments and Jesus' final speech, provide a really interesting conclusion to this first half of John's Gospel. I don't know if you remember, but John's Gospel is really divided into two big chunks. Chapters 1 through 12 have sometimes been called the Book of Signs where John records for us seven miraculous signs that, that point us to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and the promised Messiah and the Savior of the world. And then John chapters 13 through 21, zoom in and focus on the final days of Jesus on the earth, his time in teaching with his disciples, uh, his worldwide ministry at the cross, and then his resurrection, and just a little bit of a glimpse of uh, kind of what happens after that. And so we're really coming to a, if, if a book were divided into, you know, part, part one, part two, we're coming to the end of part one. And so there's some interesting 
uh, literary symmetry that I think John is trying to provide here. Because as we're just reading it, you don't necessarily think in terms of a break. But in terms of the content of the Gospel, he's really going to hit the pause button here. And then he's going to zoom in for the next several chapters. And so there's some interesting parallels with the opening of this Gospel, this prologue in John chapter 1. And we're going to touch on some of that in just a second. And the kinds of things, not only that Jesus says, but that John himself records for us, his comments that he makes uh, along the way, where we see themes reemerging. And we'll see again, get the idea that John is being very intentional, not just in which stories he's telling, but in the way he goes about telling them. So the first, uh, the first thing that we see here, the kind of first reality, that's one of the overarching themes of John's Gospel that is highlighted for us here in these last few verses of chapter 12 is that Jesus was sent as a missionary from God. Jesus was sent to the earth from God as a missionary, as it were. Now, if you were to look back at John chapter 1, and you could go ahead and do this because we'll go back and forth. Maybe just keep your finger in John chapter 1. And we'll see some of these parallels. So Jesus was sent as a missionary from God. Look at John 1, verse 5. Excuse me, actually verse 4 and 5. It says, in Him, that is in the Word of God, who is Jesus, incarnate in Jesus, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own. Pause. We're going to stop right there in the middle of that verse, as awkward as that feels. We'll come back to it. The light came into the world. Jesus came to His own. Down in verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John opens his Gospel with the reality of Jesus as a missionary to us. Jesus sent from God as light into the world, sent from God to His own people. Now let's skip over to John 12. And you'll see in verses 44 through 46, this is the beginning of Jesus' speech. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in Me, believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Echoing actually his own statement in John 8.12, where he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so John opens the Gospel by pointing to Jesus as light from God who's been sent into the world, sent to His people. And Jesus' final statements here in John 12, 44, 
through 46, remind us that he was sent here from God and he came into the world as light so that anybody who would believe would not walk in darkness. And again, this is the constant refrain of Jesus and his own teachings throughout John's Gospel. I'm not here on my own authority. I'm here because of the, because the Father sent me. He, the Father and I are one. So bear with me here. This will feel like kind of a litany of verses and references. I'm not asking you to turn there with me. But I'm just going to give you a sampling. This is not all of them. A sampling of what we have seen in John's Gospel of Jesus being sent as a missionary to us from God. In John 3.16, he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. In John 5.19, Jesus said, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing, expressing this unity between Father and Son. There's a few verses later in 5.23, He says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So they are so connected that to worship Jesus is to worship the Father. And if you don't worship Jesus as the Son of God, then you're not worshiping God the Father who sent Him. Him. Verse 5.30 I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 6.29 This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom the Father has sent. 6.32 My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 6.38 I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 7.16, Jesus says, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. 7.33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to Him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. John 8.19, If you knew me, you would know my Father also. 8.29, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. 8.42, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. That's just a sampling. We have seen a lot more than that in, in the, the teachings of Jesus and his public ministry over and over and over. He reiterates and makes very plain the message, I came from God. I am one with God the Father. My words are His words. To worship me is to worship the One who sent me. Jesus was sent as a missionary from God. Interestingly, when Jesus tells His disciples, you are the light of the world, He's essentially passing on His missionary mantle to His followers. And saying, now you are being sent into the world to bear the light. So Jesus was sent as a missionary from God. That is the first thing that John opens his Gospel with. It's this refrain throughout the first 12 chapters and Jesus is bringing this up in His final public message. Jesus was sent to us as a missionary. But here's the second reality. Jesus was rejected by His people. Jesus was rejected 
by his people. He came as a missionary. He was sent to his people, and they did not receive him. Look at John 1, 11. We read the first half of this just a minute ago. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In John 3.19, Jesus says that the light has come into the world, but people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They didn't want the light to shine on their wickedness and expose it, so they preferred the shadows. Sin always prefers the shadows, by the way. It prefers secrecy, privacy. Don't tell anybody, don't let anybody see what I'm struggling with. And that's where it festers and grows. So it always tells us that lie. Jesus brings His light and sinners recoil from it and hide from it and stay in the shadows. Jesus came as a missionary to His people and His people rejected Him. Now look back at John 12, this message. Verse 37 through 41. This is back, going a little bit backward from where we were just a minute ago. Actually, the middle of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Alright, pause. Though He had done so many signs, they still did not believe. Just like John said in John chapter 1, the light came into the world, he came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. They rejected him. Just like Jesus said in John 3.19, light shone into the darkness, and people preferred the darkness. And they rejected the light. Now John is telling us in his own commentary here, that though Jesus had done so many amazing public miracles that would authenticate his message and his identity as the Son of God, still people didn't believe. Well, John's not going to just stop at saying that they didn't believe. He's going to talk to us about why they didn't believe. Look at there again at verse 38. They still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of Him. So, he quotes Isaiah twice, but two different parts of Isaiah. So I'm actually going to take you to those two places in Isaiah. He says that though Jesus had done all these signs, people didn't believe in Him. So that, in other words, they didn't believe in order that a prophecy from Isaiah might be fulfilled, might come to pass. And that's where he says, Lord, who has believed our report? That starts Isaiah chapter 53. 
Verse 1 of Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here's what the rest of Isaiah 53 goes on to say. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Who is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world as light into darkness about the servant that God would send. And the servant would come not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. And he would be rejected by people and seen as judged and condemned by God. And the Bible even says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And eventually put to death. So John quotes for us this prophecy from Isaiah 53, which is clearly about Jesus and His ministry as the suffering servant who will take our sins upon Himself. And he says, who has believed what he's heard? Again, pointing out that people don't accept this. People reject this message of the crucified, suffering Messiah. Because in the Jewish understanding and the way that they read those promises in the Old Testament about a king coming and reigning forever, messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't get dragged out of town and nailed to a cross. It doesn't make any sense. And so he says, this prophecy, Lord, who has believed our report, is being fulfilled in the people's unbelief. Why didn't they believe in Jesus even though He had performed all these signs? So that the prophecy of Isaiah might be fulfilled. You see, John is concerned to show the faithfulness of God. He wants to be sure that we see that what God said will happen will actually happen. So when God says, I'm going to send my son, my servant into the world to redeem you and you're going to reject him. You're not going to believe him. You're going to cast him aside. John goes, hey, so look at Jesus' ministry. He did all these cool things and people still didn't believe. You know why? Because God said that was going to happen. God said people are going to reject him when he comes. He's going to, be, he's going to suffer because of that. Because of the rejection of him and eventual crucifixion of him. So even in a statement of God about people not believing the message of his prophet, at that time Isaiah, we find that the unbelief of the people is itself a fulfillment of God's prophecy. A fulfillment of the promises of God, if you will, about the way that the world works and the way that reality will unfold. Jesus will come and he'll be rejected. And sure enough, That is what is happening as we see 
even though Jesus did all these signs, they still did not believe. So the first reason, if you will, that John gives us for the unbelief of so many is the fulfillment of prophecy. God said this was going to happen, and now you see it happening. But he gives us a second reason. Perhaps a little bit more unsettling of a reason even than that. And that's that their unbelief is a result of God's sovereign purposes. This quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 6. If you remember, if you know the context of Isaiah 6, this is where Isaiah has this vision of God seated on the throne and His glory filling the temple and the angels are flying around Him crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. That's this vision of Isaiah. And it's in this moment that he is called. He receives the calling of God to be a prophet. God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord. Send me. Well, in the very next verse, Isaiah 6.10, he just said in verse 9, here I am, send me. And then he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That is what John quotes for us in chapter 12. Therefore, verse 39, they could not believe. For, Isaiah said, in Isaiah 6, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Sounds a bit like Peter, who says in 1 Peter 2, verse 8, of those who do not believe, quote, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So, even though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Why? Why didn't they believe? Well, first of all, that prophecy that God had given hundreds of years ago might be fulfilled, and God's Word would be proven true, and His character would be seen as faithful and right. Secondly, because God has mysterious sovereign purposes that we can't see and understand that result in belief on the part of some and unbelief on the part of others. Have you ever had a friend that you're kind of embarrassed by? You know, somebody that you consider them a friend, but kind of depending on who's around you, you might... Keep your distance a little bit. Downplay your relationship. You know, you'd rather not talk about them. And frankly, you're hoping nobody asks if you're friends with them. If you've never had that experience, you might be that friend for somebody. Just a little warning. I'm just kidding. Um, but I, I think that's how some of us feel about this teaching. About the idea that 
there are those who are blind and who will not believe because of God's sovereign, mysterious purposes. We see it there in the Bible. Can't really deny it's true, but it's a little embarrassing. Right? We'd rather keep our distance, downplay its reality. I don't really want to talk about it, and I'm kind of hoping that nobody asks me what I believe about God's sovereignty in the saving of sinners. We have this sort of begrudging acceptance. Okay, I guess that's true. but I really don't like it, so I'm going to keep that over there and hope that nobody talks to me about it. Listen, God's not embarrassed. And He doesn't need us to be embarrassed for Him. God is completely sovereign. He defines reality. He is utterly free to do whatever He pleases. And that's part of what it means for God to be God. In Romans 9, Paul kind of makes this, anticipates this argument. He's talking about God as the potter forming some vessels for mercy and others uh, that will be for destruction. And then he says, wait, is there any injustice with God? Like, he's anticipating that somebody's going to go, wait a minute, that's not fair. Right? Everybody should have the same chance, the same opportunity. That's not fair. And his response to that is, first, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And then he says, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So God seemed to say to Moses, as God, I do what I, what I know is right. I do what is in my heart to do regarding the giving of mercy or the withholding of mercy. It's mine. It's mine to give or withhold, and that's what it means for God to be God. He can do whatever He wants. And we can accept that and acknowledge that and affirm that. God is sovereign. God can do what He pleases. God is sovereign even over the, I would say, choices of people. And yet, people are no less responsible for the choices that we make and for how we respond to the Gospel. Because God doesn't doesn't just plan the ends of who will be saved and who won't be saved. He also plans the means. And the means is preach the gospel without discrimination to all. And Jesus says, I will gather my sheep. Remember back in John 10? I will gather them. My sheep know my voice. They hear me and they come when I call them. So if we have a hard time putting all the pieces together and wrapping our minds all the way around it, I think it's helpful to remember Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord. There's a point at which we've got to go, I affirm what the Bible affirms, and beyond that, I just don't know. I don't get how it all fits together. And we like little bows. We like theological systems that we can kind of wrap up in a box and go, here's how all those pieces fit. I don't think God necessarily wants us to have all the pieces together all the time. To be able to put God and all of His ways in this little box. This is how this all works. It's beyond us. It's even the basic nature of who God is as Trinity, we don't get that. You can't pretend to get that. He is three, but He's one. Father, Son, Spirit. Distinct persons, all equal in 
godness, in deity, equally worthy of worship, and only one being. You're already, from the start, your box is doing somersaults to try to figure out how to fit that. It doesn't work. So when you get all the way down to how God saves fallen sinners, just get rid of the box. Throw the box away. We don't need a label. We don't need to put a sticker on it. We don't need a system. We need to go to God's Word and affirm what is here and recognize, you know, there's a category of, I don't get it. And I don't think I'm supposed to get it. And I'm okay with that. And I don't think God is embarrassed about that. So Jesus came into the world as a missionary. Jesus was sent as light to the world. And He was rejected. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. The light shone in the darkness and people loved the darkness rather than the light. In John 12.37, though He did so many signs before them, they still did not believe. But take heart, because the third and final thing that we learn from this final speech of Jesus and John's comments on it is that God overcomes even the most hardened hearts. God overcomes even the most hardened hearts. Look back in John chapter 1 again. We saw in John 1.11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Oh, but verse 12 is so good. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the theme of God's sovereignty and the saving of sinners is even reflected right there in John 1.12, 1.13. Those who would receive Him were born not of flesh, not of the will of man, but of the will of God. God made them be born again. In John 3, when Jesus gives that analogy to Nicodemus, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Go make yourself be born. Try it. You can't. It doesn't work. It's a movement of the Spirit of God, which he says, you see, just like the wind, you see it blowing. I mean, you see its effects. You can feel it. You can hear it. But you don't see wind. You can't touch it. You can't make it blow. You can't turn the direction of the wind. It does what it pleases. The Holy Spirit rebirths, if you will, whomever He pleases and in whatever way He chooses. He gives the right to become children of God. Now look back at John 12. This is right after John has quoted Isaiah and said he's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see and understand and turn and I would heal them. Verse 42 says, nevertheless, nevertheless, even though Hearts are hardened. Even though God's sovereign purposes are being fulfilled in the unbelief of many, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Him. Even of the authorities believed in Him. Now, these are probably top-level 
dudes. The authorities in John's Gospel usually refers to the Sanhedrin or the chief priest or someone in this kind of religious ruling class. The Sanhedrin basically being the kind of supreme court of the Jewish people. Like they call the shots. What they say becomes law. And these are the guys who have put into motion a plot to execute Jesus. That's who this group of people is. But many, even of the authorities, believe in him. And yet we've already seen glimpses of one Pharisee who seems to be moving toward belief in Jesus, at least toying with it. You remember who that is? Anybody remember the name of the Pharisee? You don't remember? Nicodemus, yeah, I heard it being whispered out there. Nicodemus, right? We saw him come to Jesus at night in John 3. In John 7, I believe it is, when the chief priests and Pharisees were sort of considering what they should do about Jesus, they had kind of said, like, maybe we should put him to death. And Nicodemus spoke up and said, shouldn't we at least let him have a fair trial before we do that, right? So he's not coming all the way out and saying, I'm with him, but he's kind of speaking on behalf of Jesus. Right? So we see him maybe moving in that direction. Keep your eye out for him as the Gospel unfolds. So these are bad dudes. right? As a group, these are the people the high priest Caiaphas just a few weeks ago we read said, let's just kill Jesus so that we can keep our positions of power and prestige. Like That would be a lot easier. After reading 12 chapters of John's Gospel, this is not the group of guys among whom you'd expect to find sincere followers of Jesus. But John tells us there in verse 42 that even among the authorities, many believe. Now apparently they're afraid. He says uh, they believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. We've already seen that happening back in John 9 after Jesus healed a blind man. It said that the, the, the Pharisees had decided that anyone who believed in Jesus would be put out of the synagogue. And so they don't want to be kicked out. Verse 43 says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Hopefully they'll change. Hopefully the cross will have a way of leading them to that final kind of moment of decision. But many of even the authorities have believed in Him. So here's the good news about God's sovereign sway over the belief and unbelief of human beings. There is no rebellion so complete, no heart so hard, that God cannot turn it toward Himself in faith. Even the ones who are the last people you would expect to find faith, God can lead them to repentance. Is there someone in your life that's far from the Lord? Maybe they used to be a Christian, but now they've wandered away from that. Maybe they've never been a Christian and you you see that they're struggling and their lives are a mess and you think, I really would love to see this person Come to faith. Somebody that you know that's far from the Lord, you can scarcely imagine the possibility even of them coming to Him. The very idea of thinking that this person would humble himself and call out to Jesus in faith sounds almost absurd to you. There's somebody like that in your life. 
don't forget the sovereign prerogative, the sovereign authority held by God alone to soften that person's heart, to open his eyes to truth, and to lead him to the cross of Jesus Christ. And indeed, this is the great confidence of the missionary task. The fact that Jesus put that mantle of light of the world on us and said, you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. How's that even possible? How's it possible that our good deeds and our good words and our lives and witness are somehow going to make people glorify God? You know how it's possible? God alone is the one who turns hearts. We don't save anybody. We have no authority, no ability to save anybody at all. But God does. So here's what we do. A couple of applications of all this. How do we respond to the hardness of human hearts, the fog of unbelief that covers people's eyes, and this awareness that no human being is able to turn to Jesus Christ in faith unless God sovereignly works in his heart? Two things, real quick. Number one, Humbly rejoice in your own salvation. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's because God has sovereignly worked in your heart to turn you toward Himself in faith. God mercifully saved you, rescued you. That's why we use words like saved. You can't save yourself. If you're drowning, you can't undrown yourself. You need help from the outside. God rescued you. We don't deserve this. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. And God graciously removed the scales from our eyes so that we could see the beauty of Jesus Christ and respond in faith to His invitation. Rejoice in this. Humbly rejoice. This is not of works. I couldn't have done this myself. I couldn't even choose to believe myself if God hadn't worked in my heart to bring me to that place where I could make that choice. There's an old hymn by Isaac Watts called How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Awful in the sense of awe and wonder. It says this, How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Like There's this feast, this rich feast that's laid before His people. And here's the second stanza. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, wow, look at all these things he's provided. Each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? That ought to be our heart as it relates to our relationship with God and our salvation before him. God, why did you save me? Why did you choose me? Why did you work in my heart to bring repentance that leads to knowledge of the truth. This is sheer grace, sheer kindness, and mercy. Praise God. But the second thing we can do in light of God's sovereignty over the saving of sinners and even the unbelief that is around us is earnestly pray for the salvation of others. Earnestly pray for the salvation of others. This is God's work. It has to be. We can't save anybody. We can speak. We can love. We can model. We can try to persuade. We can plead. And we must. We should do those things. But we won't save a single soul. 
No, we do all this speaking and loving and pleading in the earnest hope that, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance is a gift of God. If we have unbelievers in our life and in our communities and in our workplaces and our families, and we want to see them trust in Christ, plead with God to do the work in their hearts that only He can do. You can't save them. You can't turn them, but He can. This is why we pray for non-believers. It's God's work. It must be done by Him. And so we plead with Him earnestly, do it, do it, do it for the praise of His name and the glory of Jesus Christ. Conclude with Jesus' own words from John 6, verses 38-40. through 40. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Let's pray.